News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. It's Wednesday morning, and we're now on the third day of the biggest nurse strike in decades at Montefiore, in the Bronx, in Mount Sinai, Manhattan, where 70,000 nurses are off the job, pressuring their big employers to commit to better staff-to-patient ratios. In the meantime, former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg is about to end what will end up being like a 100-day skid bid at uh, the North Infirmary Command on Rikers Island that often ends up holding famous or notorious inmates. And also at Rikers, controller Brad Lander is calling out the lack of transparency in a no-bid contract application from the Department of Correction to a company that would basically eliminate physical mail and convert letters to people being sent there into like PDFs they could read on computers. All this supposedly as a way to crack down on contraband, though many others say most of that contraband, in fact, comes in through correction officers. Mm-hmm. And our focus today... Governor Kathy Hochul, uh, newly historically elected Governor Kathy Hochul, delivered her first State of the State speech since winning re-election on Tuesday and talked early on about population flight as an existential threat to the Empire State and laid out a somewhat ambitious agenda, a lot of it aligned with that of Mayor Eric Adams, and centered around a housing plan she said would create 800,000 new units in the next decade. Some of this involves setting up goals that if places like Long Island uh, don't hit them, uh, then then allow a state board to override local zoning and rules, since all of us, including New York City, are essentially creations of the state. Um, that, in a lot of ways, echoes what Mayor Adams has been after. Um, Hochul also talked about new hospital beds uh, for the severely mentally ill and supportive housing units and rather tepidly about some further changes to the bail reform bill that's already been rolled back twice in parts since it was first implemented in 2019. So, look, it was a pretty big, exhausting speech, as these state of the states tend to be, setting up what looks to be a rough budget negotiation season, which is when Albany gets most of its actual lawmaking done and what's often called the big ugly. Uh, <laughs> Chrissy, good morning. Uh, wh- what did you make of this speech? And and how do you see where New York is going and where the governor is trying to steer New York over this coming year? And with all this happening with the backdrop of the lawmakers having just given themselves a raise mm-hmm. and fighting against uh, her nominee to run the Court of Appeals and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned uh the judgeship and the and that potential fight. I mean, this was the first state of the state for Kathy Hochul where she is an elected governor. So I think a lot of people were looking at this in a slightly different lens because this is her first time really properly as the elected governor, the elected executive of the state of New York. So I think we're going to have a long road ahead of us. She wasn't going into the speech with a victory where her first big nomination was not 
met with uh, overwhelming applause or enthusiasm from the Democratic State Senate. So she couldn't go in with that victory saying we're all in lockstep and, you know, we're going to start 2023 off together. She's got housing. She's clearly, you know, obviously going to have to negotiate with Eric Adams on various policy proposals, you know, whether it's bail reform or how we're thinking about uh, housing and also immigration. And then we have to remember that the good thing for Kathy Hochul and Eric Adams is that they're both moderates, um, whereas de Blasio and Cuomo couldn't figure out whether or not they wanted to be super progressive and behave moderately. Um, You know, their labels didn't always uh, match up with their actions. But I also think, you know, as we move forward in 2023, Kathy Hochul has to also remember certain environmental protections that I didn't hear enough about. And so for me, the context of the speech, you know, Buffalo was in the shadows. I mean, Buffalo has had a really, really hard few months, you know, to say nothing about the massacre, um, you know, domestic terrorism. But then when we think about environmental issues and the snowstorm and 40 people dying in Buffalo, many of them, uh, African or African-American. And so there's some class and racial dynamics that I don't know if Kathy Hochul fully understands or is addressing in an adequate fashion, but it's not going to go away. Um, And so I would have liked to hear a lot more about an environmental plan and not just like a transportation plan. And I think she's got a little bit of that Cuomo Achilles heel where she doesn't want to seem like Mario Cuomo, where, you know, I'm just talking in flowery language and poetry and prose, but I want to build things. Um, And I want to have like a mark on the state that says, you know, I have this highway system or I built this, you know, transit structure. Um, But you got to remember that that can and should be done but she's got to conquer some other details that I'm not sure she's got her head in the game in the way that I need her to. Now, granted, full disclosure, I voted for her enthusiastically over Lee Zeldin. Like, I think Lee Zeldin would have been an unmitigated disaster for the state of New York on a host of levels, starting with he supports domestic terrorists, period, dot, end. That having been said, now that Kathy Hochul is governor by a slim margin, by the way, um, I need a more detailed vision. And I'm hoping that she has a little bit of that Adams philosophy, which is, well, if I can't do it, at least let me have some good people around me that I'll listen to 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 implement my policies. So state of the state is like uh, an initial negotiation posture, mm-hmm. essentially. But it's like uh, the governor has the I, stage. And I call she- it the opening bid. Yeah, yeah. And gets to lay out her agenda. And she sent her this on her housing agenda. And one thing that's really stood out to me, not to get too far into the weeds, is that she's talking about 800,000 new units. And the bulk of that, 407,000 of them, is just replacing 421A, which is the tax break in effect that developers get uh, to create rental housing in New York City where it's crazy expensive to uh, get anything built. And then all the other significant parts of her plan, like the state being able to override local zoning, that's like 149 of the 800,000. More stuff around uh, transit hubs. So so this is all really for the New York suburbs and and for Long Island in particular, 190,000. Those two up, and it doesn't even 
come close to this tax break. In the meantime, a lot of the Democrats farther to the left in the legislature are less interested in 421A and, and subsidizing developers to get things built than in this idea she did not bring up at all. She also did not bring up the Buffalo snowstorm at all, which you just mentioned, Chrissy. They want a just cause eviction, uh, which developers, uh, property owners have, have argued would be like sort of a form of, of universal rent stabilization where your rent could only go up so much and you couldn't be pushed out unless there was a specific reason. So I, I don't know how this gets uh, resolved in Albany this year. And I do know that some of the stuff we're talking a lot about in New York City, like converting office buildings, some of them into uh, residential places and other uses, that's like a fraction here. It's it's 18,000 out of 800,000. Um, legalizing basement apartments, 38,000 out of 800,000. So naturally, we all get involved in these symbolic issues. And bail reform is one of those where, where there are characters and you can use this as a shorthand sometimes for, for larger conversations. Uh, but what's funny is basically it's like either we replace this tax break where there's no chance of getting anything like adequate housing built, at least from Hochul's assumptions. And uh, you have a legislature that has an entirely different agenda, uh, starting with uh, parts of it, starting with just cause eviction. And I just don't know how, how Hochul breaks through here the same way Adams has a very ambitious agenda and is up against a council that, that, that sees a different set of uh moves to take the city forward yeah and i i think and i know there's so many organizations that are working on behalf of tenants to try and get them sort of equity or help them stay in their apartments i'm really i think what concerns me harry is that one we're still in a pandemic right so i don't want to use the phrase in post-pandemic but as we negotiate how we live with this pandemic and we sort of get back to normal, even though, you know, we know long-term COVID is real. We know a lot of people are still dying from COVID or still struggling with COVID, all those things. But as we try and get back to normal and our various economic systems try and recalibrate themselves, I really do worry about a lot of folks who are concerned that they won't be able to afford to live in this city. And so on the one hand, we've got Eric Adams saying, we've got all this empty real estate, you know, these commercial real estate downtown. We got to get people back into their offices. Maybe we need to be creative and, you know, convert that to housing. Like, let's figure it out so we can, you know, not have empty buildings and get people out of their homes. And then on the other hand, you know, when you talk to just people across this quote-unquote middle-class spectrum, so many folks who are renting are just like, my rent is going up exponentially, like legally or illegally, and I don't know how I'm going to stay in the city. And so we, we're now seeing this like musical chairs of people who are kind of moving around the city trying to find a place that they can afford. But we also know that a lot of people are going to move into places and then have to move out because I can't afford. So then it creates this, this, I was about to use a bad word, sorry. <laughs> uh, this cluster situation um, of folks where, you know, not all landlords are the same. So you have some landlords who are mom and pops who are like, listen, if you don't pay rent, you can't stay here. Like you're helping me pay my mortgage. So the agreement is thus, if you pay, you stay. If you don't, you gotta go. 
because I need this money. And then you have these larger conglomerates who, you know, don't necessarily treat their renters uh, in in equitable or dignified ways. So I don't, I mean, Harry, I'm really, I really don't have a solution, but I am really struggling with like, how do we figure this out? Because I don't want New York to just be a place of only, you know, rich kids whose parents are paying their rent. It shouldn't be a place where, you know, if you got in and were able to buy whenever you were able to buy, and then it's just empty apartments because no one can really afford it. So, but I also, I do recognize, you know, for smaller landlords who have, you know, an apartment here, an apartment there that they rent out in their home or whatever it may be, they actually, they need, they need their income as well. So I don't know. Like I I genuinely don't know what the solution is, but I do worry that a lot of folks are really scared that they're going to have to leave the city um, because they just can't afford the rent. Which makes me think of 2010 with the rents too damn high candidate and everyone kind of chuckled at him, but like he clearly was onto something. He he broke through, and people knew him to chuckle uh, because that phrase is is so just evidently true and resonant. And you know, the cost of living here generally can be a uh, preposterous. And so, either you've got like a real compelling reason to be here, and this could be uh, work or family just maybe youth and ambition, you know, and you want to be where, where the other people are or, or at some point, you know, people start asking why they're here and, and what they're getting out of it. And that, that is in a lot of ways, the immediate challenge for the city going forward and post knock on wood peak pandemic and uh, with zoom and this recognition that, that you can actually have lots of the benefits of this place without needing to uh to pay that premium necessarily. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think, you know, when people ask themselves why am I here and what am I paying for, you know, I would always say, well, it's, you know, theater and museums and culture. But for a lot of folks, it's like, well, I can't afford the theater, right? I what, I'm going to stand in line with hundreds of other people for the one free night at a particular museum. I mean, there are a lot of draws to New York that even still are inaccessible to a lot of folks. And it's, I hear it, you know, especially when I'm talking to my students, you know, some whose parents are subsidizing a large portion of them being in New York and a lot whose parents are not. And so when I'm like, oh, have you checked out this exhibit? And they're like, well, I can't, you know, go the one free night that it's, that the museum's open. So no, I haven't seen, you know, X. Or it's like, yeah, they're theater tickets for students or, you know, whatever it may be. But it's like, I don't have to, I work three jobs. So like, I can't stand in TKTS or whatever it is to try and, you know, get the student tickets. So like the draw to New York, all these cultural institutions still have these barriers for people who are working and, and trying to make a living. And so mm-hmm. I I think my concern is, you know, on the one hand, you've got people who are like, the crime. I'm like, okay, if you're that afraid of crime, then move out of the city. That's fine. but. I think for a lot of people who want to stay and recognize that part of being with 9 million people is that sometimes folks are going to act out of pocket. There's just, I don't know if the cost benefit analysis for a lot of people is going to be enough. Now, here's the question though. Is this, are we now, have we crossed over Harry into, are we having the same conversation that all New Yorkers have? Like every, you know, it's like a cycle. Is it every 10 years? Is it every 15 years? It's like, uh, the city, everyone's going to leave because it's too expensive. And then we get a new crop of people. And that's just, that's just what cities do. They re- repopulate themselves almost like a forest. Is that, 
Are we are we just old people now? So the Yogi Barrow line, he gets asked about some night spot and he says, no, allegedly, nobody goes there anymore. It's too popular. And right. th- that is always the uh, the New Yorkers right. lament, of right. course. But but Chrissy, I mean, all the stuff we're talking about is really, really new. These things that seem like intractable or cyclical problems, like big modern cities in the West of more than a million people are less than 150 years old. And they're basically a function of trains and uh, people being able to go farther in the course of a day than they could and having hubs that that, that arise in relation to that and suburbs, uh, as, as we're talking about. Modern homelessness and uh, the sort of uh, severely mentally ill street populations that have been a big topic of conversation around the city and on this pond, you know, this is basically right about 1980, and it's plainly some combination of the, the closing of institutions and then the ending of SROs, uh, single residence occupancies, mm-hmm. like a, a room with a um, with the sink mm-hmm. uh, and maybe a hot pot, you know, for single men mostly to mm-hmm. to live in that that used to be a very common form in the city but but the idea of having mentally disturbed street people in America and in New York City is less than 50 years old right and you had bowery bombs and such things before that but th- these are actually really new problems uh that have something to do with uh in- advancing industry and I'd argue capitalism and having like people living in very new forms that had not been physically possible before. So you got the uh, trains to spread things out, and then you've got skill and new construction techniques to uh, let them, let them go up. So you can build into the sky and density, you know, of a sort that uh, is really necessary here. And like New York isn't Houston or whatever. Like there's not like open land right outside the city to spread out and put people in exactly. And this is part of, Hochul's push and to get Long Island in particular, which has generated like so little new housing for decades now, like the people who are there, like the people who have family money or often rent stabilized places where they're paying below market in New York, like, like have this inherited advantage. And then it's that much more expensive or difficult for everyone else. And you don't want to punish the people who are able to hang on. Uh, but the question is how to create like a fairer and open deal for people who are continuing to arrive here and and all those parts. And it's really challenging. Lee Zeldin, by the way, has an editorial column, whatever, in the uh, New York Post today, um, which is indeed, indeed. And, you know, the post was 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 completely in the bag for him. And it was comforting to me and just whatever reservations I may have about Hochul, about the state of Democrats in New York City, to see him try to do a sober policy voice voice, as opposed to, you know, fear for your life, fear for everything, and lay out what he thinks his agenda should have been. And it's simply incoherent. Even as Mm. 900 words in the post and and that sort of document, there's zero mention of housing in it uh, for starters. You know, four of his 10 points are, are basically crime and fear stuff. And, you know, like you could throw this into the AI, you know, uh, New York Post Republican says what? And this is effectively what would come out. Mm-hmm. So that is to me as well, just totally unacceptable. 
Um, but it worries me because it means there's not some useful opposition in New York. And let's not even yeah. talk about the Manhattan Republicans and the young Republicans right. and their crowd boy and such things, enthusiasms at the moment, that there's not some, some second party to balance things. I'm not nostalgic uh, for the uh, IDC, but I do think things are imbalanced in some sense when like 14 members of the Democratic caucus, so like a third of it. Is against uh, the governor's court of appeals nominee Hector LaSalle, and they're pointing to like a handful of court decisions of decisions he's made as a judge to this point to say his politics on abortion and on labor issues in particular are unacceptable. I haven't delved in to know yeah. whether those were clean decisions or not, but what I do know is that that's really weird. It's like an inversion of the Hastert rule. Dennis Hastert, former House Speaker, convicted child molester, a disgusting person, but he said nothing gets to the floor for a vote unless a majority of the majority wants it. In that case, meaning the Republican caucus. In New York right now, we have a minority of the majority, one third of them saying this nominee is not okay. And Democrats working very actively to see if they can stop this from coming to a vote at all, like adding new members to the to the committee to try to block things there and avoid a floor vote. And that does seem very strange and worrisome in the same way as we're about to deal with with Congress. Sorry, last thing here, where all these crazy Republicans who have this nuclear veto now on Kevin McCarthy, what they want this for is the Daily News lays out today in a really smart editorial. And what's going to happen is they want to they want to I think the uh, term of art is uh, F up, explode the debt limit that when we yeah. hit it, instead of finding any way around that, saying no. And then this lets you do that Reagan dream and kill the uh, the government baby. Yeah. Uh, throw it right out with the bathwater. Uh, that, that, that's really scary. But Congress, like New York, increasingly does everything through these gigantic appropriation bills. And all the lawmaking happens there. That's what happens in Albany. It's been a bipartisan problem in Washington, a Democratic problem in New York. But it, it's an absolutely crazy way to do government. There's no transparency. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a smart way to do government. And this is where we get, you know, trillions of dollars lost in the shuffle. We can't account for anything. And so... I like this comparison, you know, because we always have to remember the federal and the state uh, legislative processes because so much of our money comes from the federal government. You know, I mean, we also have to remember that Republicans aren't operating in good faith efforts, right? They want to keep their population poor and confused because then they can just kind of run away with the store. But I think with Kathy Hochul, you know, I need to do a little more of my own research on this uh, judge nominee, largely because, you know, Kathy Hochul said New York state is a pro pro-choice state. Unequivocally, she said it. She got a lot of votes from a lot of men and women, women specifically, because she was full-throated in her support that New York State will be a sanctuary state for women, no matter where we're coming from. You know, and so you can't have your first nominee as someone who possibly doesn't have that same fervor. And so as we look through these judicial cases, and not just the, the headlines, but like really look through the judicial cases, I think it would have behooved her. Yes, I think there's some identity politics that makes sense. We have zero Latino leadership in certain levels of the executive. And so she's trying to also make a nod to that. But then choose one of the highly qualified Latino jurists that are on are in lockstep with you when it comes to choice. And so I think the court of public opinion right now is what's winning and actually swaying some members in Albany to either remain silent or do a little more digging than they normally would have done just because they don't need their constituents 
in, you know, we're in an odd number year right now, but we'll be in an even number year soon enough, which means that's an election year. They don't need their constituents saying, wait, I thought you and the governor were pro-choice. And now you're, you're, you know, voting for someone who's anti-choice. I mean, you're writing your opposition's, you know, campaign literature for them. So I, I think that's what's making uh, some folks a little, little gun shy on that. What's interesting is I, I don't know all the details. What I do know is is that the idea of this guy LaSalle as a threat to women's rights comes from this uh, appellate court, which is the second highest court in New York and where Judge LaSalle is presently, right? We have a very weird system. The Court of Appeals is the highest court. Uh, lots of other states used to have that, but they changed it to the Supreme Court, so this makes sense to human beings. Right. So he's on the second highest court. He actually helps run that. Part of Hochul's argument is he's a really good court administrator, and the chief judge of the Court of Appeals, the high court in New York, actually administers the whole court system. On the abortion front, this is this 2017 decision from a panel of judges, I believe three. So LaSalle was part of a panel of judges that was looking into a subpoena issued by then Attorney General, now disgraced uh, abuser of women, Eric Schneiderman, going at a shady anti-abortion or quote-unquote abortion alternatives group. And the panel found unanimously that this was a unconstitutional fishing expedition in part. I don't know, having not delved into the case, if this is a question of his underlying ideological beliefs or just the uh, questions of law that came up. And obviously judges have lots of discretion in a panel in this case and how they sort through and frame all that. What I am certain of is that Hochul, having already had a horrific first partial term decision with uh, Brian Benjamin, uh, now starting off with LaSalle here, did not confirm that she had organized labor in her corner before going forward with this pick. And they, they have concerns as well because of another decision he made, basically allowing people to sue union leaders for defamation. Uh, and whatever the underlying ideological truths like she doesn't have enough people to defend him as this is being framed as this guy doesn't care about the uh the right to choose that hokel is sworn to uphold and said new york is entirely behind that he's anti-labor that she did not line up her support before putting him out yeah and th that that that's worrisome and she's had she's had a period as governor now and and, and training wheels and here here we are this year, I think, is really going to be show and prove about whether or not she is able to wield power and set the agenda in the way governors in New York have to this point, and as the legislature is looking to assert its own power. Well, I think that is that's the most surprising piece about this whole nomination, which is like, get some Nancy Pelosi spirit in you, Kathy Hochul. Like, don't bring up anything until you've gotten your ducks in a row. Like, I don't understand why you basically create a scenario where you might take an L first month on the job. And it's like, all you had to do was call Andrea Stewart Cousins and sort of get, you know, gauge, gauge some things. <laughs> hey, sis. How's it looking? What do you think your folks will say if I nominate this cat? Because I don't know if this is the case, but from where I'm standing, it seems as though she's like, oh, great. We have zero Latino leadership of a certain level. Let me just get this identity politics on and that'll just, you know, buy me some time. No, ma'am. That's not how things that's not how things work. And so then I'm looking at Kathy Hochul sideways because I'm like, so are you just saying any old Latino will do? Is that 
Is that your thought process? Because this, these votes are not lined up. And if he, and if he gets through, it'll be a, a bloodied and bruised battle and she'll have to give some concessions. So you're starting your first tenure sort of, you know, on the defensive, uh, as opposed to nominating someone where everyone's like, we all feel good. Let's move forward. Because there are people that actually uh, she could nominate. I'm so sure that, you know, the vast majority of the Democratic caucus would say like, yes, this is great. It's a no brainer. Let's move on. Let's let's now tackle some real business. But this is now a distraction for her. And so the fact that she doesn't understand the executive legislative negotiation process, the backdoor process, lets me know that I'm like, have you not been paying attention to what Democrats have been doing in D.C.? Or even how your predecessor negotiated things beforehand and after? Chrissy, you're fabulous. Uh, much more to discuss. Thank you, listeners. Uh, goodbye. Ciao, ciao. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. That's thecity.nyc slash G-I-V-E. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our hosts this episode were Christina Greer and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. Thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.